All right, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you that we have the privilege of lifting up our voices to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are an amazing God who we are privileged to be able to call our Father, that we can lift up our voices and proclaim how great you are. We can proclaim it to one another, we can proclaim it to ourselves, we can proclaim it to the nations. Let us be faithful, Lord, to do so. And Lord, we pray today for those that are uh, sick and hurting that you would bring your uh, ministering spirit, your Holy Spirit, to wash upon them, to touch them, God, to heal them of whatever infirmity they might have. We pray for those that are dealing with different emotional issues, God, that you would show them that you love them, that you are there for them, and that you will walk with them whatever they need to walk through. Thank you, Father, for the truthfulness of your word. I pray, God, today that it would be preached faithfully uh, throughout St. Charles County from each of the different churches. We thank you, God, that there are many men who are standing firm on your word, and may they do so, and do so, and do so, God. Lord, let us receive your word today in this church. Let us hear it, and let us receive it, and let us walk in that truth. Lord, we do pray for our children who are headed back to class. <clears throat> I pray for every, every child here represented by a family here, God, that each one of them would come to know you in a real and a powerful way, God. We pray for real fruit, Lord. Give the wisdom to those teachers now, teaching those children, Lord. Let them hear the truth of your word. Let them hear the beauty of the gospel and respond to it in faith, Lord. You want us to come like a child to you, Lord. And you save many, many, many when they are young. So we ask you to do that and that they would grow up to be godly men and women. I pray for the parents here, that they would be fast about your word and fast about ministering your truth to their children. Give them the parents' wisdom beyond their years to shepherd their children, to shepherd their children's hearts to you, God. And let them walk in humility before you always. Lord, we pray that, that we ourselves would be fast about proclaiming your word to the nations, about sending others to it, about proclaiming your truth. Lord, even as we've wrapped up the Christmas season, <clears throat> don't let us forget the wonder and awe of you sending your son, the incarnation, God in the flesh, for us. Be with us now, God, as we continue on in this service. We thank you that you're here with us. Continue to be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 2, as we've discussed before, but I want to repeat again, is not written to primarily foretell the future, but it's written to pastor the church. So these aren't just academic matters. It's to prepare the church, not just the Thessalonian church, but, but this church and really all churches. God wants his people prepared and ready. He wants them shepherded. So chapter 2 here is not merely to satisfy our curiosity about eschatological matters, about the end times, which is what sometimes happens, but rather it's providing desperately needed pastoral comfort to believers who are frightened about end time events. 
They are unsure about their salvation on the day Christ returns. He's providing to them comfort. The seriousness of the situation that we see in chapter 2 is suggested by two facts. One, the subject matter is the first thing the apostle discusses in the body of the letter. Chapter 1 is kind of an introduction, and he mentions some different things. But really, chapter 2 is the focus of the letter. And he goes to great lengths, as we've seen, to treat this matter. Other subjects taken up in the letter. He talks about suffering in chapter 1, and then in chapter 3, he's going to talk about members that are idle. Really, all that links to chapter 2 and the different things that he discusses in chapter 2. Think for a moment of some of the New Testament letters. Each one of them is written to the church. What? Well, one, to build up the church, but also to correct the church. Sometimes a different particular churches back then were getting off on particular subjects, so the apostles would write and address those issues. Sometimes they would be able to do it in person. Sometimes they wrote the letter to do that for them because they couldn't be there in person. But those New Testament letters are to build up, but it's also to correct. God wants us, as the church, to make sure that we are walking in righteousness and truth. He doesn't want us walking in error or sin. That's the deception that is talked about towards the end of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But he also wants us being built up. But those things go hand in hand. Because you can't be built up. You can't be built up if you're walking in error. You can't be built up if you don't have the truth. So those are the two things that, that the New Testament is really focusing on. We have to have the truth. We have it right here. But we are privileged to learn from the errors that the New Testament churches sometimes face. We're privileged to learn from, even in 1 Corinthians 10, you know, Paul talks about, hey, what the Israelites went through is for you all to learn from. So we're privileged to learn from all the Old Testament errors and all the New Testament issues that were going on. I mean, we're privileged to have it. It's like, hey, thanks for doing that and going through that, all that for us, all right? Like, we appreciate that because we can avoid all that, hopefully. So it's here for our instruction, for our building up, and, and, and to guide us around certain things that we're supposed to avoid, different errors that we don't want to get near, different sins we should not be touching whatsoever, and that's what 2 Thessalonians is really hitting on. So when we get into verse 7 and it talks about the mystery of lawlessness, here's the thing. Anytime you see that word mystery in the New Testament, we always think of mystery as like something that's hidden. I mean, that kind of makes sense. What's the mystery? What's the mystery? But when it talks about it in the New Testament, mystery is something hidden that is now revealed. It's a divine truth that was once kept secret by God, but he is now revealed to his faithful, to his children. So what about this word lawlessness? The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Lawlessness, we're going to look at some verses in a moment, but lawlessness is really a synonym for sin. It's a synonym. So in view here is a rebellion against God and his will. When we talk about lawlessness, there's many scriptures. You'd be surprised how many scriptures talk about lawlessness. It is a rebellion against God and his will. That's why when you go back to verse 3 and it talks about the man of lawlessness, I mean it makes sense that he's going to be a man of rebellion, a man of sin, a man dead set against God. So it is this rebellion against God, a mysterious rebellion, and that it is hidden and unobservable to unbelievers. Okay, it's unobservable to unbelievers, but it is revealed by God to believers and readily known. That's why it says it's already at work. I mean, think about it for a moment. I mean, can't you see the works of unrighteousness that wreak havoc in unbelievers that you know? You can see them walking down paths of destruction. They're walking in utter foolishness and stupidity. You can see it, but they can't. They can't see it. It's still a mystery to them. It's a mystery 
They are, they are blind to it. To, to them, this lawlessness is a hidden mystery to which they are completely unaware. And what is it doing in them? It is working death and destruction. And yet they do not know it. They head towards a cliff that will spell their doom, yet they do not see the edge getting closer and closer and closer. They don't see the danger that they are in. Friends, what's our job? I mean, we're supposed to cry out like, stop! Danger! Beware! Like, if someone doesn't realize that they're about to stumble over a cliff, I mean, you want to intercede and help them out. That's what we want to do. They're in darkness. How well can you see in the pitch black of night? Not very well, right? You wake up in the middle of the night, if it's really dark, like you start, you're just trying to make it to the bathroom. Like a little tiny shoe in the way. You just stumble over it. You can't even see that little shoe. Why? Because there's darkness. Well, I mean, that is what the unbeliever is in. Darkness. They cannot see spiritual truths. They are in darkness. But we can see it. Well, that's great that we can see it. That's good for us, right? Like we know Jesus. We have eternal life in him. But part of our job is to warn others of the darkness that they're in. We want to warn them. These people need to receive the truth and be awakened to their sin. We want to stand on the truth. I was listening to a podcast recently of a real big church and they were talking, and they made this statement, <clears throat> do you care more about being right, or do you care about the relationship? Which, in certain contexts, I can understand that. Like, if you're dealing with, um, if you're in counseling, and you're dealing with a husband and wife, right? Every, every person that's married knows this. Do you care more about being right, or do you care about the relationship? Like, who cares if McDonald's opens at 5 p.m. or 5.30 p.m. or closes, right? I mean, who cares what, what some of those minute details? I know none of you all are guilty of that in your own marriages, okay? But just once or twice through the 22 years Andrew and I have been married, we've had some of those uh, discussions. <clears throat> but yeah, who cares more about being right or being about, about the relationship? Yeah, some of those minute things... Like, if we're all honest, we've gotten in arguments over some of the stupidest, silliest stuff, right? So, that, that <clears throat> I understand that question being asked. Do you care more about being right, or do you care about the relationship? But, in the very next sentence, this person said, at the end of the day, with everything that Jesus was about in the Bible, he was about the relationship with us. And I heard that, I was out actually jogging. And I had to like pause it and rewind it and listen to it for a few times because I'm like, I, I don't, I, I hope he's not really saying what I think he actually said. Because he, uh, let me read it again. At the end of the day, with everything that Jesus was about in the Bible, he was about the relationship with us. Comparing it to about being right or about being more concerned about the relationship. Well, let me tell you something. Why, why do we initially like a statement like that? At the end of the day, Jesus was really about his relationship with us. We like that because it's all about me. Like, all, everything that Jesus was about is about you. That's not true. That's not true. There's an element of truth there, but that's not the primary truth. If we're going to boil everything down at the end of the day that Jesus was about in the Bible, guess what it was about? It was about him serving the Father. It was about his relationship with the Father. That's if we're going to boil it all down. That's what he was concerned about. And guess what, friends? He was more concerned about the truth than about relationships. He really was. What did he say to the, the, like the, 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 the top disciple, Peter, who was like the leader of the disciples after Jesus? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus, you're not really concerned about your relationship with Peter, are you? Calling him Satan like that? No, he was concerned about the truth. So yeah, on, on a key issue like where Peter has totally veered off, he's wanting to get Jesus off the mission, Jesus rebukes him. It's actually an act of love. But he rebukes him. He was about the truth. And if we care more about people 
than truth. I'm not talking about those little arguments I was just talking about, about pithy stuff. I'm talking about foundational truths that our society is completely against in this day and age. But if we care more about people than truth, we will end up doing great spiritual harm to those people. We will love them more than the truth. And thus, we will be unwilling to speak to them the truth when they desperately need it. So don't make Jesus into something he isn't. Don't put words in his mouth. Was he more concerned about the relationship or being right? Uh, He was more concerned about being right. Think of what one of the saddest verses, in my opinion, John 6. Jesus just gives this tough teaching. And it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Is that someone that's more concerned about the truth or relationship? He's concerned about the truth. He's concerned about the truth, so he's going to stand on that. Truths that matter for eternal lives. Truths that are foundational, like Jesus is not going to compromise. He's going to stand on it, even if it means many of his disciples. It doesn't say like many of his, it was interesting, it's the word disciples, that's what it says there. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Then what does he do? He like turns to the 12 and he's like, what are you all going to do? And, and they're like, well, you have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal, like, yeah, we got different options here. We could, we could go follow this rabbi over here or this rabbi over here. They had different rabbis and schools of thought back then. But only one had the words of eternal life. Only one. And his name was Jesus. So guess what? The disciples, the 12 were like, hey, we know you have the truth. We've seen it for the last few years. We're going to continue following after you. Because it's only in you that the full truth, the complete truth, the whole truth, and eternal life itself is found. This is, this is coming up to when they're like, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the book of John that he's, he's talking to them about eternal life being found in Jesus alone. Not in any other rabbi back then. They might have spoken great truth about the Old Testament. But Jesus comes and he is the rabbi of rabbis. And he's not just a great teacher. He was a great teacher, but he's not just a great teacher. And they knew that. That's why they're like, who do you say that I am? And that's the question that every single one of us has to answer. And if if, if our answer is only great teacher, that doesn't do us any good. There's many great teachers throughout history. Many great teachers. But Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And what's the right answer? You are the Christ, the Son of God. We can talk about believing in Jesus, friends, but we have to make sure we have the right Jesus. He is the Messiah that was sent for our redemption. He is the Son of God that the Father sent down to redeem us. That is the one that we trust and seek after. So when we're talking about lawlessness, and rebellion against God, like, we have to choose which direction we're going to go. Because when it comes to Jesus, he's going to give us the truth, the straight truth, and the whole truth. And guess what? Sometimes we're not going to like that. Like, the world has their own little definition of Jesus. And they kind of have this little box that they've placed him in, and all the nice things that he said, all the things they agree with, well, that's the real Jesus. No, friends, that's not true. If you only like Jesus because of the nice things he says, then you really don't know Jesus. If you're only going to trust Jesus on the things that you agree with, then you don't know Jesus. He's going to say things that you don't like at times. He's going to come because he loves you, and he's going to prick your heart and be like, what you did was wrong. He's going to convict you of your sin. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2. Look what he says, 2 Peter uh, chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting 
for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And then notice what he says here. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, like, hey, I've warned you, I've told you what's going on, you know what's coming down the pike, get ready, be prepared. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away. Carried away with what? With the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. There's that word lawless. We can get swept away with other people's lawlessness. That's why we have to be wise when we choose the company we're going to associate with. Now, does that mean we're never around unbelievers? We're never hanging out with them? Absolutely not. But when we're doing that, like, we're on mission. We're looking for opportunities to share, to share with them. We're looking for opportunities to build those relationships to either invite them to church or give them the gospel or both. We're looking to reach them with the truth. And if you've got unbelieving friends and you're just hanging out with them year after year after year and you're not sharing with them, friends, that's not love. It's not love. They're on a path to hell. They're on a path to hell. They need to know that. You can't let them stay on the path to hell and say you love them. Warn them of the cliff that they're coming to. Look at Romans chapter 6. He says in verse 17, Romans 6, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Do you see the contrast there? You got lawlessness on the one hand, you got righteousness on the other. You got deeds of darkness on the one hand, you got deeds of righteousness on the other. You got living in darkness over here, you got sanctification over here. We want to be people that aren't lawless, but walk according to the truth. Look at Romans chapter 1, a few chapters back. Look what it says in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So what's going on? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, it says, against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How are they suppressing by the truth? By walking in darkness. By living according to the deeds of the flesh. You know, just this past week, I believe IGY, Justice, went through this passage at IGY. This is a tough passage because it has some hard truths in it. But I'm thankful that we have a pastor who will treat, preach these hard truths to our youth, okay? Because this is the truth that they need, and this is the truth that we need. So look what it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Friends, no single person has an excuse. You can come up with all the excuses, just like your children sometimes try to do. 
but they aren't valid. They won't work. Look what it says, 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what does God do? We find out. What's he going to do? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God's wrath is being revealed. Why? Because of this wickedness. Not because things are great. Not because people on their own choose the good. And what's the one sign that his wrath is being revealed? It goes on. We find out. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then look how it concludes. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Friends, sometimes we think, we think big sins are not okay, but small sins are okay. Like, tell me, like, which sins are acceptable to God? Which sins are acceptable to him? Which sins aren't a big deal? Which sins didn't Jesus have to shed his blood for because they were small sins? Friends, when it's talking about sin and the consequences, it's always talking about for the wages of sin is death. Not the wages of big sins, but the wages of sin is death. Here's what it says in Romans 8. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, the deeds of the body, you will live. God calls us to put to death the deeds of the body. Does it say put to death the big deeds of the body, the horrible deeds? No, all deeds. All sins. In fact, <clears throat> God doesn't even want us talking about some of the heinousness of sins that occur and talking about them in, in crass different ways. So bad is it that he talks about it not being even named among us. Look at Ephesians for a second so you can see this. Verse 1, Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then he's going to get real serious here. He's going to hit on some big things. He's going to be really real with all of us because he's going he's to just lay it out there like it needs to be laid out there. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all purity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. You know, like every few years, it seems like um, the, the topic comes up with some of the youth. Like, oh, is, is, is it okay to use, you know, curse words? You know, because, oh, the Bible doesn't say, don't say this word or that word or this word. I, 
this kind of puts it to rest here. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. I mean, do we need a list? No, I mean, he kind of just takes care of it right there. No foolishness, no filthiness, no crude joking. What does he say? They are out of place. Out of place. And then he goes on, verse 5, But you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. Think about this for a moment, friends. Paul is telling this to a church that had a cult in the city where sex was one of the ways that you worshipped. I mean, that, that's one way to increase the worship attendance at your local temple, you know, include sex. But it was like routine. It was part of everyday life. They had grown up with it. Yet Paul gives them no excuse. Them coming out of this vile, reprobate society. And he says, no excuse. Not one excuse. Friends, it is inexcusable for believers to walk in darkness. And he says it quite, quite plainly. What's the result if you're doing this? No inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The sexually immoral, the fornicators, the adulterers, the homosexuals practicing that lifestyle, they have no hope in the kingdom. It is not given to them. Let me be clear. Over and over we get lists of sins and, and God spells it out very clearly what keeps us out of the kingdom of heaven. We can claim all we want that we know Christ. But if we are walking in our hearts away from him, then we don't know him. Over and over he is very clear who's in and who's out. Over and over. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians 6, verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. You're like, the unrighteous? I mean, who's the unrighteous? And Paul's like, oh, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you a little description here. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If any of those apply to any of you, guess what? You will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not me saying it. It is me saying it. But that's the word of God saying it and me just repeating it. He is crystal clear here. Why? Because he cares about your eternal soul and doesn't want anyone to perish. Second Peter, he wants no one to perish. And if you're living like this, you're not going to heaven. That's the truth of the matter. Oh, pastor, that sounds like works. No, it sounds like the Bible. It sounds like the Word of God. It sounds like God saying, if you're living like that, then you never were one of mine. You never were. So if that's you, guess what? Repent. Repent of your sin. And guess what, friends? Don't be sitting there right now thinking, well, I'm not any of those things. Really? Do we need to... Read the list again. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Like, how are you doing with your finances and handling that? The greedy are listed here. How's your intake with alcohol? Are you misusing it? Revilers, swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, I deliver this message because I love you. And if this is true for you, I don't want you to be deceived. That's what Paul is saying here. Do not be deceived. Why? Because people back then and people today are deceived, thinking they can have their sin and have Jesus too. It doesn't work that way. You can have one master, one master, 
one master. You're going to be a slave to something. Slave to sin or slave to righteousness. Which one are you going to be? You get to decide which one do you want to be. If you're going to be a slave to righteousness, then guess what? Walk in the righteousness of Christ. Walk with him. If you're going to be a slave to sin, guess what? You have no inheritance with Jesus. Jesus has nothing to do with darkness. He came to free us from the darkness. He came to free us from the darkness. So be set free. Friends, if, if any of these things come close to describing you, you're like, well, I've, I've never, I'm married, pastor, and I've never slept with another person besides my spouse. That, that's great. But what about your pornography addiction? What about your browser history? Like you're committing adultery in your heart. That displeases God. The covenant that he has given us with marriage, you're defiling that. And that's wrong. You've defiled the covenant with your spouse. You need to repent. Listen, God's view when it comes to marriage is one man and one woman. I don't care what the Supreme Court says. as one man and one woman. They can try to rewrite God's law. His law is going to stand. They can go against God all they want. as one man and one woman. Not two men, not two women, not two women and one man. We're getting there, I promise you. Not two men and one woman, but one man and one woman. And God wants you to be faithful. If you've made that covenant, you made a covenant before God. One of the things I greatly appreciate about weddings is it is a great reminder for the married of the covenant that they already made. It is a great reminder for the single people of the gravity of what they might one day make. A covenant before God with another person. That's serious. That's sacrosanct. God wants us to treat that in a righteous and holy way. Our society has totally gone against that. Friends, people are, are believing all sorts of drivel. That's why he says back in 2 Thessalonians, and he's talking about a future time coming where with all wicked deception, they're believing all sorts of different things. But part of that deception is here. Part of it we just read in Romans, the deception I mean, why is any of this important? Because people are being spoon-fed a steady diet of lies. If you're going to open up your social media apps if you have them, if you're going to turn on the news, you're going to be fed a steady diet of lies. I don't care what news station it is. I don't care what social media app it is. You're going to receive a steady diet of lies. And people are believing all sorts of drivel. Let me tell you something, talking about social media. I mean, Jesus was pretty crystal clear. He didn't take some low view of sin. It cost him his very life for your sin. That's not a low view of sin. And he said if your right hand causes you to stumble, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. That's pretty drastic. The point is, you take drastic measures to deal with sin. Okay? And if the app on your phone causes you to stumble, guess what? Delete it. All right? Do whatever you got to do to walk in righteousness. And some of you need to have a little reformation with your phone and with your computers because it's displeasing to God. With the movies you watch, it's displeasing to God. Okay, whatever you're taking in here, the eye is the lamp of the body. Okay, you're, you're, feeding, you're feeding your soul. Okay, so be wise about those things. And be willing to take drastic measure to deal with sin. It's not worth it. Jesus is like, oh, you want, you want to go, you want both hands? You can have both hands in hell. You got both hands. You want to be with me? You got to take drastic measures. Drastic measures. I mean, friends, think about that. You want to be with Christ, you're basically laying down your life. And saying, Jesus, you tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Show me the path, and I'll walk it. However hard it is, however tough it is, whoever abandons me, as long as you don't, Jesus, I will stick to that path. Will you do that? 
Will you do that for Jesus? Okay, because people are feasting on all sorts of lies. They feast upon these lies like someone who hasn't eaten for days. Don't be that person. They just gobble it up without even pausing to think what might be made out of it. What it might be made of. It's made of lies, man, but it just tastes so good. You just keep eating those lies. We just, we just want to hear what we want to hear sometimes. So we just throw off the filter and just take it all in. Man, God says, guess what? Repent. Repent. Let me give you, as we wrap up here, let me give you a little bit of encouragement. Look at Romans chapter 5. we got two great verses here right at the end of Romans 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're guilty of any of the sins talked about today, and guess what? All of us at some point were guilty of some of those things. And God has saved us out of that. That's why he says in Ephesians and he says in 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you. Were, right? Were. So yeah, in our midst, we've got all sorts of sinners from the past gathered together. From the past. But if, if that's you today, friends, you can t- take hope. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Your sin is not greater than God's grace for you. If you repent, man, he is so quick to forgive. Yes, he is. So quick to forgive. So I encourage you to humble yourself in God's presence. From the greatest of sins to what you might think are the smallest of sins, your sin cost the Savior his life. Just like we were singing earlier, that should cause us to weep. We killed Jesus. So we need to repent. But God, in his mercy, in his love, sent Jesus for the very purpose of saving us. To redeem us. And Corinthians says, he became sin so that we might be forgiven of our sin. He took our unrighteousness so that we could receive his righteousness. So where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God can cover your sin. He can wipe it away completely. And he has in Christ. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, God wants you to receive his grace for the first time. He wants to wipe away your sins. He wants you to receive healing and restoration and wholeness and forgiveness. He wants you to be justified in his sight. He wants you to be made holy in his sight and he can do that. Completely his work that he does. He'll regenerate you in milliseconds, if not quicker. So come to Jesus. Trust in him. Guess what we have if we are in Jesus? We have victory. We have victory. You know, the Olympics were last year. One of the nations, Fiji, small little country, they ended up winning gold in rugby. And do you know what they did when they won? They got on their knees, they prayed to God in thanksgiving, and they sang a hymn of praise. And part of the lyrics say this, we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the Lord. We have overcome. 
Isn't that true? Yes, it is. That's how we overcome. Yes. And, and, and Matthew, in chapter 12, when he's describing Jesus, he quotes Isaiah. This great verse, he says, A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. Like, we got some bruised reeds here today. And some smoldering wicks about to go out. But what does Jesus do? He comes along. Puts your arm around you. He helps you. He leads you back to the Father. Not because of something that you've done, but because of what he's already done. He's not going to take the bruised reed and break it. He's not going to snuff out that smoldering wick that is just about to go out. No. He is for you. He is for you. Okay, here's the thing. None of us default to dependence on God. Our default is not to depend on him. We have to fight for it. Our, our, our default is independence. We want to be independent. We want to do our own thing. Okay, we got to fight against the flesh. So none of us default to a dependence on God. If, if we just, it's that great escalator illustration. You know, we're trying to go up the escalator backwards. If we pause on the escalator, we, we lose ground. We got to continually fight, okay? Walking the life. I was reading an article by a, a, a theologian I admire the other day. And he was talking about quiet time and being in the Word. And he's like, man, some people talk about going like weeks and months without the Word. And he's like, man, I, I, if I go like a couple of days, I'm in big trouble. I was like, man, I can relate to that. Because I, I got to be in the Word. Like my default, just on my own, is not like, oh, I trust. No, like I got to wake up and I got to remind myself, man, today I'm going to seek the Lord. Today I'm going to be one of His. Today I'm going to be on His side. Today I am going to seek the kingdom first. Yeah. Friends, if we just go to our default position, we're just going to live for ourselves. We will just do our own thing. So when we talk about, oh, 20 years ago I trusted in Christ, amen. Hallelujah. But 20 years later, you still got to be trusting him actively. Walking in his truth. Seeking after him. You know what we see early on in the Bible? God shows us what we need. What happens in Genesis 3? The fall. And what do we see? We see sin and we see the effects of sin. So what do people need? And here's what one theologian said. If you're a Marxist, what you need are revolutionaries and decent economists. If you're a psychologist, what you need is an army of counselors. If you think the root of all breakdown and disorder is medical. What you need is a large number of Mayo clinics. But if our greatest need is to be reconciled to God, a God who stands over against us and pronounces death upon us because of our willfully chosen rebellion, then what we need the most is to be reconciled to him. What we need the most is someone to save us. And here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the victory comes. We need someone to save us. And hallelujah, we do have someone to save us. Jesus is here to save a people for his own. Will you be saved by Jesus today? Will you trust in him? Will you walk in his ways? Let me talk to the believers for a second. Receive the word today that's been spoken about repentance, about sin. Get right with the Lord. You can't have your sin and have Jesus too. And for the unbeliever hearing this, the message is the same, repent. God offers you forgiveness through his son Jesus. He sent his son on the rescue mission to bring you back to the Father. All of your sins. And if we're honest, all of us have done some pretty heinous, horrible things. God will forgive that in Jesus. 
You can be reconciled to the Father. Your past, present, and future sins wiped out just like that. It almost sounds too good to be true. But God promises that. And guess what? If he promises, every single promise of his is yes in Christ. You trust in him, you won't be disappointed. He offers you eternal life, he will follow through. You believe in him, the eternal life is granted to you. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, what's his gift? Eternal life. Not just this physical life, not the bios life, the biology life, no, the zoe life, the eternal life, the spiritual life, being reconciled to God and being given with him one day face-to-face in heaven. I know we talk about, oh, it's going to be great to see this person or that person in heaven. I'm looking forward to that part too, man. But the greatest thing, Jesus. Jesus. All right? Even if none of y'all were going to be there, I'd still want to go there. Because that's where Jesus is. I want to be with him, and I want to be with the Father. I know many of you are going to be there with me. I hope all of you, and I pray all of you will be too. Through trusting in Christ, you can be. The gift of God is salvation. Trust in Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, today, anyone walking in unrighteousness, I pray you would convict them. Tie a rope with a heavy rock on their heart right now to weigh it down and be convicted of their sin so that they might know the the seriousness of it and the gravity of it. And then show them, God, that you'll come and and snip that rope and remove the weight if they but come to you and repent. So, Lord, I ask right now you'd give people humble hearts to walk in humility before you. To walk in true humility. And let them come before you now, the believer repenting of whatever deeds of darkness they might be doing. And the unbeliever, God, coming to be cleansed by you. Send your spirit now, your spirit of conviction, your spirit of truth, your spirit of mercy to speak to our hearts. Open up the eyes of the blind. Open up the eyes of the blind that they may see the truth. Regenerate their souls. Enliven in them them a hunger and a passion for you. Father, we ask you would do this for your namesake, for your glory, that many souls would be saved, that the deeds of darkness would be cast off and people would come before your throne and trust in you. Thank you for your gift of salvation. Grant it today to many people. In Jesus' name, amen.